Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. And welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. You know, we're living in a time where software is more prevalent than ever. All right, there's software solutions everywhere we turn, new apps, new different things. And certainly, I guess, in the business community, I talk to more entrepreneurs these days that are tech and SaaS focused than ever before. And it's not surprising, right? Software is, is a massive factor in our lives. It's, it sort of permeates everything we do. But as an entrepreneur, I think one of the things that, that I also hear a lot about is, is how do really creative, intelligent people take an idea, commercialize it, get it to market and build the next great thing? You know, most of them don't necessarily come from a position where they have so much money, they can just throw it and build it however they want and, and be, be the sole owner of this new empire or venture. So, you know, people are running around, they're raising capital, they're partnering with people, and slowly and slowly over time, entrepreneurs get watered down and watered down and watered down until sometimes where they own actually very, very little of the opportunity that they started. My next guest is Eric Rind. Now, this guy's almost like the godfather of software, right? He was building software before the internet. He was doing sort of cloud computing before that was actually even a term. You know, he's created a really interesting software solution around HR and payroll. And he talks a bit about what it's like to be a minority shareholder. What does that mean when it comes time to sell? What are the different sort of tensions you get between kind of getting the money you want versus you know, the dream of where your baby should really go, you know, and, and how does that sort of stuff permeate the way you do business going forward? You know, he talks quite frankly about a number of the business opportunities involved in, and he talks a lot about the future of not just blockchain, but software and privacy and data and, and why this is just so important to all of us. I found this episode quite interesting. It certainly gave me some really good insights into to things I need to think about as a business owner. And I hope it'll do the same for you. This is Eric Rind. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure indeed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm spending more and more time these days, both in our sort of core business exit advisory group, as well as on this podcast, talking about software. And... It's not surprising. I think we all realize that this is the way the world's going. But um, I, I love having software people on here to sort of give some context because it's, it's like everywhere I turn, everyone's talking about building new software. So, you know, I'm hoping, Eric, today we can sort of unpack your journey a little bit, understand what this journey has been like in software and, and I guess where you think it's going. Um, and hopefully we can, we can unpack your story around PowerPay and that, that deal. Um, so tell me, how, how did you get started in this space? Well, it's interesting, you know, that we're going to talk about PowerPay. So as you can tell from my, my picture here, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore. <laughs> when in the PowerPay <laughs> days, I was. <laughs> so we're going back. We, we exited PowerPay in 1998. That's how long ago that one was. Um, so that PowerPay was uh, what's now, it wasn't called back then, but today it's called HCM, Human Capital Management Space, HR Payroll Benefits. and I got started in that space actually as a management consultant working for Price Waterhouse. Spent almost a decade working for them out of college. Uh, got assigned to a group that was specialized in HR projects. Started to ge uh, generate expertise in that. I was a technician, even though 
in 1983 when I started, if you knew what a computer was, that made you technical. <laughs> so, so I was like the most technical guy in my consulting group at Price Waterhouse. Uh, and I eventually got recruited. I got, I got recruited away by a startup company in that in the HR space. And together we built uh, PowerPay software. And that was around 80. That was around 1990. So as I said, so we exited in 98. So it was an eight-year journey from the time I left Price Waterhouse to exiting. Um, first time, first exit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what a different sort of transition, right? I mean, I think you're in software, and the I mean, the internet didn't even exist at that point. And so, you know, I mean, what? How, how much have things changed? You know, I guess you oh know, beyond gosh. just the technology getting better. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough. It's amazing how many things have changed, but some things haven't. So yep. <laughs> since we're back in the past, I really started working with the Internet when I was at George Washington University. I was like one of the first people ever on it. And I was literally playing chess with a guy in Sweden through the inner university system, which was the birth of the Internet. Right before there was the Internet, I was playing chess with this guy. And I, interestingly enough, the, obviously the technology has changed dramatically. But what hasn't changed is back then, when you sat at your screen for hours and people walked by, you'd write comments about them, some good, some bad, right? That hasn't changed. <laughs> it's only gotten worse, mostly bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I know. It seems our entire world has just been invaded by uh, by the internet and all the various apps and devices. So yeah, it's it certainly is a different world. Although, as you say, I mean, people people and human behavior, I don't think has changed. It's just how we go about it. Yeah, I like to tell people I was a professional, already a seasoned veteran professional long before Google came along and messed up the world. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, Eric, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, for somebody who's got the kind of experience you've got, I imagine there's going to be a bunch of business owners listening to this thinking, uh, you know, thinking about building some kind of software solution. You know, maybe they're, they're, they're sort of young, already sort of digital native kind of people who are, you know, just see tech as the way forward. But I, I suspect there's a bunch of more established businesses out there and probably guys my age and older who wonder wonder whether they should be building a software solution for their business um, to help them, you know, maybe improve their offering, whatever it might be. C can you talk us through a little bit about, like, what does it take for a company to, to develop uh, a piece of software and, and what does that kind of roadmap look like? Yeah, um, interesting. You know, a company developing software I, I, I was a little averse, right? Because I, I was a consultant. So for me, I was, <laughs> in fact, what drove me nuts was we were producing paper, right? We were writing specifications of a new payroll system for the civilian employees of the United States Army and the United States Navy. So we filled up a room of binders. <laughs> and, this, and the government paid like millions of dollars for that. I was, and I'm thinking in my head, but what did the taxpayer get for that? <laughs> and the answer was nothing. Wouldn't it be better if we had just built the system, right? So in my mind, even though I was a consultant, I was always thinking of how to automate and how to build and how to do something different, right? So if you're a, if you're a business, it's interesting because you might be sitting on a gold mine if you think about something, some problem in your own business, and you think about what it would take to automate and solve that problem, it may be excellent for your business, but it also may be a new business for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting. I've, I've spoken to a few entrepreneurs on the show now who that was exactly their approach. They, they were running a business. They saw a problem that software could solve. So literally, they were building it for themselves. Um, and of course, I think every entrepreneur out there has one eye on the, well, hey, if it works for me, why wouldn't it work for other people? And, and uh, you know, probably somewhere in the back of their mind that if they get it right, the software business could be bigger than their core business. Yeah. So in, in my specific case, I, I, I didn't like the fact that we generated papers. So I actually convinced the partners 
at Price Waterhouse to let me build the thing. If this was without a client, which is a pretty big deal at Price Waterhouse. <laughs> and I promised him I would do it off book. I still got to get my billable hours up, <laughs> but I also was building basically, you know, on my own time with a bunch of other people who volunteered. And then when we got it done, they were like, okay, now what do we do with it? We're not a software company. So they tried to sell it. And it, and it's interestingly enough, we went and spoke with a, a guy who they were trying to sell this solution to. And he calls me up and says, Eric, I'm not paying Price Waterhouse. I'm just going to buy you. <laughs> so, and, and, and that's interesting because he was an entrepreneur, right? And he was going, look, I'm not going to pay Price Waterhouse X million when all the intellectual property is sitting inside a human being who I could probably get a lot cheaper. <laughs> so, and at first I told him no, but through stuff that went on in my private life, I eventually turned around and told him, let's do it. And that's how I got started in 90. That's how I left Price Waterhouse and became an entrepreneur with this guy to design an integrated HR payroll system to run on PCs. Now, in 1990, we, our client who is literally funding the development was TRW. I'm not sure TRW was that before. But so TRW at the time was 50,000 employees. And we were about to try to take their payroll off the mainframe and put it onto microcomputers. Couldn't be done. Couldn't be done. Except we did it. <laughs> so. <laughs> Excellent. So just to confirm, so TRW, is that the automotive firm? Uh, they were an aerospace automotive. They were, at the time, they were a big, big multidimensional. I'm not, I, as I said, they, they were based out of Ohio, and I'm not even sure they're around anymore. I think they broke up. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, so talk to me a bit about the journey with PowerPay then. Like it's, you mentioned it was an eight-year journey. What does it look like from... You know, did you come in with already working on a project or was it starting from scratch? How long did it take to get up and get the first customer, that sort of stuff? Well, I, I had already built most of the code. Now, the code itself, of course, belonged to Price Waterhouse. But if you're a good tech, it sits in your head. <laughs> so when I left, I took the code in my head. So it was just a matter of recoding the system and integrating it with the HR product that this company already had. They already had a PC-based HR product. We were, I was going to ratchet on this new payroll product to make it an integrated payroll HR system to run on PCs instead of mainframes. So I, you could say it was an existing project because I wasn't starting from scratch. I'd had eight years of consulting experience. I'd already understood how to build this thing. It was just building it a new set of code and making it integrate with this HR system. Um, that being said, it, it was still a fairly interesting project because we didn't know how we were going to solve that 50,000 person thing. <laughs> so again, very old. So the fastest PC in the marketplace at the time was a 38633. <laughs> right? can, can you give us, give us some context on what that means? <laughs> That that's like a thousand times slower than this phone. <laughs> I, you just you couldn't do it, right? So and the and you know payrolls payrolls one of the first apps that ever went on to a mainframe ADP, right? The largest payroll processor in the world, right? They were the guys back in the fifties who actually put payroll automated payroll and put it on mainframes, and nobody ever thought it would come off mainframes. So for us. It was like, how the heck were we going to do this? And, and that took us, right? It was one thing to know the functionality and the design. It was another thing to actually make it operate in the environment that TRW had hired us to do, which was get it off the mainframe. And that one took a while. I mean, we, we pounded around a lot of ideas. And ultimately, it, you know, the, it came down to this, is that the, the, the differentiator and the design that we had was that we were a transaction processing payroll, not batch. Most payroll systems say it's payroll time and it goes and calculates. We literally were calculating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Every time a piece of data changed, we were recalculating. So because of that, we figured, hey, what if we then <laughs> distributed the processing out, not on one 386.33, but as many as we possibly need to be able to process 50,000. So we figured out, you know, what was the time frame that what was the acceptable time frame for processing that for TRW to get payroll done? 
How fast did you know did a transaction run on a 386.33? And then we just figured out how many of these damn machines we needed. And it turned out to be 50 of them. 50. Wow. So we actually had the, the cloud <laughs> and distributed programming <laughs> a decade before those were even existing. We were doing that at TRW. It was a wall of these 386.33s. They were all... We had one central guy just breaking everything up and saying, "You do, you go do your work." It was that was fascinating. So when we had that lick, it just became, you know, then it became an exercise to get it going. And about six months after we cracked that problem, we had it up and running, and we processing payroll TRW. And, and then it just became running. Then it became running a software company. Right now, software companies back then were different than software companies today, in that. Back then, there was no internet. There was no such thing as SaaS, right? Software as a service. So you, you basically wrote software either on hardwares or on PCs. And if you wrote software on PCs, you delivered it on floppy disks. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our software actually was 15 floppy disks to load it up. You had to keep putting these things in the machine until the software was all loaded. And then you had to send updates out. There was no internet, right? So but from a business perspective, the magic, the magic point was, could you get your support, right, your, your service, your ongoing maintenance year in, year out to keep the system running for a client? You had to get that number, right? Your revenue from that had to cover your cost so that all new sales were for growth. That was the key to being a software business back then. It's probably not very different now, except the delivery mechanism is different and what support and service are. But still, that's what you wanted to get to. In the case of PowerPay, we never quite got there. We were close, but we never got there. And that kind of led us to the decision to exit, right? The question was, were we ever going to get there? And although we could have, you know, do you start looking around and see if there's a better somebody? Is there a better home for your product? Did you um what what does the so so your I presume your ideal client for, for PowerPay was was large companies with large payroll concerns? Is, is that a fair comment? Yeah, back back then it was mid to, mid mid to large companies um, because you know we weren't it wasn't cheap. Yeah, <laughs> right. The software the, the software costs about fifty thousand dollars. So and then there were, and it was like ten percent or fifty percent maintenance. You know, year in year out. So it wasn't cheap. So yeah, it was it was companies of 250 employees or more. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, what's a, what's a typical kind of sales cycle selling a piece of software like this into large companies? Like how long would it take from first kind of introduction through to, you know, making a sale? Yeah, interestingly enough, I, you know, I was I was in the HR space for 28 years and that sales cycle really didn't change even though technology did. <laughs> right. So the sales cycle to sell an HR payroll product is usually about three months. Um, it can, okay. you know, at That's the low end, bad. it can be very quick. If you're a ten, if you're if you're a ten person company, you're gonna make a decision, one, you know, very quickly. But when you're a big company, it's ninety days minimum. Usually, there's an RFP that goes out. Then there's usually a demo you have to do. Right. Then you got to meet and greet. That you just then they negotiate and. When you add that up, it, it's 90 days minimum. Yeah, yeah. I actually think, you know, when you said that, 90 days surprised me. I would have thought back in, well, I was going to say back in the day, I mean, even now, large companies and, and you know, procurement and all this sort of stuff, my goodness. I mean, I yeah, I thought you were going to say 12 months. So, so that's probably a, a pretty well, good a, effort. A, a, big, a big company, I mean, a big company could be 12 months, but usually not. I mean, Usually they've done a bunch of work up front. You know, they've already defined their requirements. They've identified a list of vendors. So when we come in, we've already been put on that list. They usually then go from their long list down to their short list very quickly. So then you're usually up, you're usually up against two or three competitors. And that's that, that you got there pretty quick. And then it was like 90 days to figure out who the winner was going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so, so you were brought into PowerPay. So, you were you a shareholder in the business? Yes, I was. I made, in fact, I made that a requirement for me to leave Price Warehouse. I love my job at Price Warehouse. I love being a management consultant. And, and in fact, until I started doing what I'm doing now, I never 
I never really liked being in the HR business, or I really never liked owning a company, I should say. I like solving problems. I didn't like solving, you know, dealing with human, my employees' problems. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Software can be uh, can be perhaps, well, I was going to say more, more compliant, maybe less problems, less drama. <laughs> yes. Um, so... What with a business like that? I mean, you mentioned that the maintenance and stuff didn't cover expenses. So, you know, I presume the company was sort of breaking even, or probably had a burn rate for a number of years. How was the business funded? Did did you know? Did was it just one benefactor? Did you have to raise capital along the way? We, what did that look like? We did not have to raise capital. It was one benefactor. We were lucky enough. The fact that because we had TRW is that you know it was basically funded the project that. That got us going pretty easily. So, so, and, and then we, although we never got to that nirvana of support covering costs, we were we always had enough sales that we were about break even. We we had some pretty close years, and we had some very good years over those eight years. You know, sometimes we were you know chewing our fingernails as the year end. You know, we've had to we had to lay off people. We had you know we hired in that eight years. We started at five as a five person company. Um, at our height, we at one point had 60 people working. When we sold the business to Ceridian, when we sold the business to Ceridian, we were down to 35 people. Okay, okay. And what was the peak of revenue for the business? Uh, the peak, of, the peak of revenue is four million annually. Four million annually. Okay, okay. So, so at what point on an eight-year journey does I mean, I mean, I'm curious about how selling and the discussion of selling came about. You know, was the idea to sell from the very beginning, or did it come up at some other stage? Was there a catalyst? What you know, talk to me about that. Um, the idea is, if you go into business and you have a partner, that's interesting. I did, <laughs> and I wasn't the majority shareholder; I was the minority shareholder. His idea was selling. My idea was not. This was my baby. I I, I created the software. I didn't have this thought of selling it in my mind. Um, but he's the majority shareholder. He did. So he was always, always looking. And he, he always had fairly close relationships with Ceridian. And, and actually, how he ended up selling it is a fairly interesting story. Um, so when we decided or when he decided, and I, 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 I tacitly agreed and he started to look for potential suitors to buy to buy the company. We actually had a company called Zurich Payroll Solutions. Um, I don't think they're in existence anymore, either, but they were they were being funded by Zurich Insurance. They had de- very deep pockets. And they wanted to get into the payroll business and they saw what we created and they saw the real opportunity that having a solution like ours could be to expand their business across small to large companies with a single set of software. That was what we were selling, right? That's what we had. Small, large didn't matter because you could run it large. You just scaled the number of machines you had to however big your payroll was. So we actually had a deal in place with Zurich Payroll Solutions. And it was a deal that I actually really liked. It had an earn out in it, right? It was there was not a lot of cash up front. There was a little bit of cash up front, but it had a very nice earn out. And I thought with their deep pockets and my solution that we could do really, really well. So I saw a very big upside to that earn out. So I was okay with that deal because I saw a, a big number at the end of it. And I also still got to control my the thing I created. They, they weren't payroll people. So I was going to be able to still control my, my software. And it was a really nice deal. So I actually had that deal on my desk. And then my partner calls me up. And just before I'm about to, to sign the deal, really, he says, look, Ceridian, who Ceridian had been in and out of our place for years. Ceridian is interested. And I said, Steve, if Ceridian is really interested, because they said they were interested five times before. I said, if they're really interested... They'll be in my office tomorrow because I'm about to sign this thing with Zurich. At figuring that there's no way that's going to happen. Well, lo and behold, the president of Ceridian Employer Services, a guy by the name of Carl Kyle, was in my office the next day. And I was stunned. It, it just, and, and he and I started to chat. And 
he got it too. Now, normally people at Ceridian didn't get what I created, but he did. And he saw as an opportunity to take the platform that we had created and remove all the legacy software that they had, and that this would become their single operating platform. That also, it was the exact same thing. So between Zurich and Ceridian, those were the same. Difference was the deal. Their deal was all cash up front. So oh, for wow. me, so same, same money, was it? It didn't matter. Yeah. For, for me, I still kind of was leaning towards Zurich, but for my partner who didn't care, he wanted the cash. <laughs> so, and he was the majority shareholder. So we went with Ceridian. That, and, and, you know, if you're going to become an entrepreneur and you're the minority shareholder, <laughs> understand you're the minority shareholder. Yeah. Yeah. Does, does being a minority shareholder, I mean, obviously you've just given a good example of, of decisions that, um, you know, obviously you don't have the final say on things, but w- what are your views on being a minority shareholder these days? Is it, um, you know, something you'd do again? Uh, no, I would not do it again. And in fact, in two, I mean, I, there were, I, I have a number of startups in 2003, which is the one that's kind of net loop that's progressed now. I, I would only do it if I was in charge, if I was a majority. I got to tell you, I mean, after we sold Ceridian and we started another company, um, that company did not do, do well at all. And it went out. It did raise money. And I came in one day and I had papers on the desk that said, basically, I was resigning as president of the company. Without any being told, no forewarning. And it was like, what is this? And the answer was, sign the papers or everybody's fired tomorrow. So, you know, <laughs> that that you don't want to ever have to go through in your life if you don't need to. So if you're going to be a minority shareholder, you understand what comes along with that. That's uh, that's some good advice there. I, I, you know, as recently as yesterday, I had some friends of mine asking me about uh, going into business with other people and investing and buying businesses and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I had a similar experience as a minority shareholder once. And um, not only not only did I hate the fact that somebody else controlled my destiny because ultimately I went into business con- to control my own f- destiny, but, um, you know, I, they... I also found out they were screwing me over and doing all sorts of stuff in the background. So it was, it was horrible. I think I swore off being a minority shareholder again, other than, of course, owning shares in a listed company, completely different. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got liquidity, but... Uh, yeah, you could get... Yeah, yeah. So I can I can relate to that. It, uh, yeah. So, and in fact, so now it's the... It, now it's kind of the reverse, right? With my... So with my current companies, or I should say companies, because... There's the, there's the payroll company we started in 2003, and there's my new um, non-payroll company called Imagine BC, which I, we, we pivoted away, and it's being funded by the payroll company. Um, but so there, that, that's interesting because I'm, I'm, not, I'm, the, I'm the largest shareholder, but I don't own 51%. But to sell the company, but, to, but I structured the deal such that to sell the company requires a super majority. So they can't sell the company without my approval. <laughs> that, right? I could actually be, I, I could be removed from the board and I could be fired, but to what end? Because, you know, so it creates an interesting dynamic. And that was 2003, it's 22, so that's 19 years ago. So I've had these guys, these, you know, and we're all much older and our lives are going in different directions and they, they have start to have different ideas of what they want to do. And I'm still not a sell the business kind of guy, but I always have to be honest about that. Yeah. How, how do you address that? Right. As, as business owners who um, let's let's say you're in a position where you're protected. But of course, you know, they can't act without you. You can't really act without them. You know, I like the point you just made there that it was 19 years ago and you're all starting to go in different directions. So is, is this something that you guys talk about? Do you address this at a board level? Is there some way of fleshing out these discussions to to avoid potential conflict? Yeah, it's definitely done at a board level. Um, and we know each other also along now. Um, so the, the, the answer is, is that since I essentially have a veto, right, 
to the sale of uh, to the sale of the of the assets or of the business, then it really comes down to me. So when I look at it, I, I ask myself, right? Is the number? There's always two questions for me. Is, is the number right? Right? Is it? it uh, is everybody going to get get a fair number out of it? So if the number is not big enough, it's just not worth worth it. Because I've I've been at this too long. They haven't worked at it. Most of them haven't worked at this. I have been working at it, right? So sometimes their number is lower than my number is. So the number has to be the right number to exit from a from a life perspective. And secondly, is I always say, where's the product going to go, right? So for example, the current company that the the non payroll company, the other company that I'm dealing with, which is about the monetization of personal information. Since our, our goal is to help people monetize their personal data, that makes Google and Facebook our arch enemies. I can't stand those companies, <laughs> right? It'd be, so, so, the, what, so it's always, well, what if Google came and offered you $6 billion? The answer would be no. I don't even have to blink. And I, just the answer is no, no, no. Because there is an ethical, right? And in my mind, the answer is no. Now, here's the good news. If those guys are offering you six billion, the company's worth a lot of money. You'll find there's probably a suitor out there who would take care of it and be a, a legitimate caretaker of it. So you don't have to take the and maybe the number's a little lower, but how much do you need, right? So, but you know, never sell, never. So you have to decide. You know, if you don't care, if you don't have ownership about what you created, then it doesn't matter. But I do. I take it pretty serious, seriously. So. You know, I, I think of it as a child. <laughs> I spend more time with the software than I did with my own two boys. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think I've known lots of entrepreneurs who uh, who, who like their uh, who like their business babies and, and spend probably a lot, a lot more time on them. But uh, yeah, I, I do want to just address one thing that you mentioned there about your number, and I and and I think that's logical. I think most people say, "Well, look, if the number's not there, it's not there." But I. I Wonder, you know, there's a lot of small business owners out there. Um, you know, small, medium. I guess that. I guess what I'm saying is they're not these astronomical firms, and and I think there's a lot of people when they're going through and thinking about their number. You know, I think when you talk about billions of dollars, as you say, how much do you need, right? I mean, if you can't if you can't live on <laughs> if you probably can't live on twenty million, you know, maybe there's an issue there, right? You need to address your lifestyle, yeah, but <laughs> big issue, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And so I think I think for a lot more business owners, though, they've probably got a smaller business. It's not necessarily this astronomical kind of oh well, well once I sell, the rest of my life is just sorted, and I never need to worry about money again. So I guess I. I I've talked to a lot of business owners who struggle to get their head around that number. You know, how do I actually construct that number? And 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 I'm wondering, did you did you ever have that that moment? Did you ever have to sort of think about, you know, if I sell this business, is it, you know, my, is it enough to support me, or was it always just a stepping stone to your next venture? Uh, that for for me, if I sell the business, it better support me because there probably isn't going to be a next venture. <laughs> um, Maybe that's why I've never sold because I want to keep working. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's getting to the number is is really self reflection and honesty, and that it comes down to what it, what is an accept acceptable living standard. Now, I'll I'll quote my mother here, and I'll I'll use a little bit of foul language for a second because my mother called it "fuck you" money. And what she meant by that was you can wake up every morning and decide, what am I going to do today? And you can say, I don't fuck you. I don't, I don't have to do anything, right? So the question is, what gets you to the FU money? Now, if you want to own a private jet, you need a lot of FU money, <laughs> right? I, I don't, right? I, so, so my number is probably much, much lower than what an entrepreneur might think, or if a millennial entrepreneur was talking to me, they'd probably be stunned about how low my number is. But I have this, you know, if you can get to this number, then I know I'm free to do whatever I want to do every morning. I I 100% agree. I, to me, I value the freedom more than I value the flashy things. It's, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, if, if, Buying a, a a private jet was the equivalent of my income of me going and buying a small secondhand Toyota. Uh, you know, sure, you know, whatever. Like if you can afford it, and it makes no difference to you. Buy, you know, spend to your heart's delight. But I, 
I don't know. For me, I like the idea. I like the FU model. I like to be able to wake up and go, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do, I'm certainly not going to do what somebody else tells me to do. <laughs> right. And, and then the next thing, which I would, I would, I don't know how many entrepreneurs go to the next level, which I do. And that is, I have my number, but then there's also the number of all your minority shareholders. Right now. So my guys have been with me for 19 years. So I've got some guys who, if I sold at my bare minimum number, it probably is not enough, given the, the sweat they put in for 19 years. So that's going to raise the number up, right? So you start to have to say, now, now, I don't try to figure out what their number is. I figure my number is good for them, <laughs> right? If I can get them to my number, then my number is going to be larger. So I have, but you have to, I do put, I always give consideration to my equity, to all my equity holders, right? And, and is it a fair exit? I don't want to just seem like I'm taking the money because I got mine and screw you guys. You, you, you can't do business that way. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. T take me back to Power Pay for a second. And I guess, any, and this question may relate to other businesses as well, but um, when you sold that business, when we went through that transaction, how long did that whole thing take from from the moment of, you know, I guess first saying discussions around what well, I think we should sell to, you know, deals done, contracts signed, et cetera? Well, I think because we already, yeah, we had been talking with Zurich Payroll Solutions for probably six months. Because we had that deal already done, it, it, it Ceridian had to match or do better, right? So that got us. Within 48 hours of Carl being in my office, we had an offer from Ceridian and we signed it. So you could say it took six months to sell the business. It only took 48 hours to sell it to Ceridian, <laughs> which is kind of strange. Yeah, look, absolutely. You know, it's um, I've, I've often sort of talking to clients about how if you're going to think about selling or you're going to sell, allow 12 months, you know, Allow 12 months from today, if you decided today, you know, you need time to prep, you need time to get out there and engage buyers and blah, 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 due diligence, et cetera. But it's, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the fact you're right. I mean, that six months of really, I mean, was really due diligence for yourselves. It was all that prep and you're all in the right headspace. Um, how, how did Zurich feel when they told you, when you told them? <laughs> uh, they were a little disappointed. And, and here's the interest. And here's a very interesting thing about that. We sold to Ceridian. I was very impressed that Carl got it. But again, I was very young and I was very naive. And I assumed, and, and to his credit, Carl did protect us. But what I was not anticipating was how the, the fiefdoms that existed within Ceridian, that everybody was protecting their turf. So Carl had this vision of getting to one platform, what he just bought. We were the enemy. We weren't, you know, we weren't partners. We weren't teammates. We were the enemy. We were a thing to be, they stall, you know, so the, the, the rank and file, this is a huge company, rank and file, stalled, created problems, right? And ultimately, they stalled long enough for Carl to lose his job, not because of us, other things. But when he went, so did we. And that was like, holy cow, right? Now, if we had gone with Zurich, that there was that did there was no infrastructure like that. This is all new. They were buying payroll services, but they didn't have fiefdoms. They th we were going to be the thing that brought it all together and made the business profitable. So in hindsight, from an execution point of view, the Zurich would have been the better deal. But again, majority shareholder, not not a day to day worker in the business. He wanted the cash. Yeah, with with that in mind. You know that that example, and it's an excellent example. Um, you know, you know, from I'm hearing, you know, Z Zurich, from the from the interests of the product and the life cycle and the the future sort of uh, potential of the product, Zurich sounds like they would have been a better buyer. So, with all that in mind, you know, does that inf does that impact your decision making as an entrepreneur? To, to, you know, if you had that time again, would that weigh into that that decision for you? Absolutely. And I look back and I know we made the wrong decision, right? But, but, and if I was a majority shareholder, I would have stuck with Zurich because I, you know, I was a day to day. I did create this. 
All right, I like the idea of seeing it come to fruition. Ceridian sold as a simple thing, the same concept, but it, it, in reality, it didn't pan out that way. We were the enemy. So, it, yeah, I mean, if I were the majority shareholder, I would I would have gone with the Zerg deal. I mean, it, it was a, it was a risk, right? It was it was an earnout. So you had I mean, that's you know, you had no idea. The earnout was aggressive. If if they if they if the software if we were able to get the software running and it did what it was supposed to do, we would have made fifteen times what Ceridian paid for us. So. I was young. I, I, and I, you know, like any young entrepreneur, arrogant, failing was not even in my mind, right? <laughs> of course, the software is going to work, right? So, yeah. So, yeah, I was, how do you walk away from this huge upside? And if you're not involved day to day and you see a whole bunch of cash there, take the cash. Yeah, yeah. But, but being, a, uh, let's say, a, a more mature, wise man now, you know, as many years on from this, do you have the same view about earnouts and stuff like that? Or would you take a different view? Um, I, I have a little bit different. I have a different view. I, I still don't mind them, uh, but I'm an older guy, right? When you're young, an earnout looks fine, right? <laughs> You've got a lot of runway. When, when you're old, an earnout doesn't look too good, right? Because you may never get there. <laughs> so, so, so earn, earnouts are a young person's game. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess we've got less opportunities to roll the dice again and have another go and do another startup, right? Right. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah, I'm 60 now and I'm essentially in my fifth, right? This is, this is the last one. <laughs> a startup at 60 is pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. You know, having said that, I, Eric, I, if you if we chat again in a couple of years and you tell me actually I did another startup, I'm not going to be surprised. <laughs> I think there's something. I think there's something in your blood. <laughs> there is, and that's cool. You know, speaking of startups, t t talk to me a little bit more about Imagine BC and what you're doing these days. Yeah, so so the new venture Imagine BC is as as I mentioned earlier. So about three years ago, a couple of things happened in my life simultaneously. We still have the HR business. We still have the HR business. We haven't exited that either. We take the profit from that. We've been investing it into Imagine BC. But I, I came across technology called blockchain technology. For blockchains, the underpinning technology behind Bitcoin. Moving crypto aside, without getting into a discussion about cryptocurrency, when I finally understood what blockchain technology was and it, its properties, I, I thought they were game changing. So I said, so how the heck do we use it? So I'm still an HR company, right? I'm still an HR company. So the first thing I thought about was as an HR company, we have a single point of failure. We have all this incredibly sensitive information, people's bank accounts, social security number, right? We got it all. We got HIPAA compliant, benefit compliant information, you know, all of it, everything. So if a bad actor breaks through our firewalls, as a medium-sized small company, we're gone. We don't have the ability to buy ourselves out of that catastrophic hack. So that's a single point of failure. So blockchain technology being a cryptographic distributed network with a, with a database capability behind it, I said, well, that's interesting. So what if we take all that data that if we lost it would put us out of business and we distribute it back to the people themselves and they owned it? So, and then when we needed it, we essentially just asked them for permission. So when we want to send them their tax form and we need to produce it with their name, they put their key in, we produce the form, send them their form. We never had the data other than for that, you know, that momentary transaction. It's certainly never sitting on our servers. No bad actor can get to your private data. Seemed like a really cool idea. And I convinced my board of directors to let me start a little project to go down that highway, build a self-service module to our HR to incorporate blockchain technology into our HR product. <clears throat> and this is where things get interesting. We were about six months into that. And we kind of took a breath back because we saw the product we were designing. We said, what we're really doing here is telling people they should take back ownership of their data. Now, this was kind of the exact time the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. I mean, the timing couldn't be more amazing. The other thing that occurred at the time was the birth of my first grandchild. And I and the future looks pretty bleak to me. And if we don't 
stop Google and Facebook and TikToks and the Twitters, then my grandchild has a very bad future ahead of him. So I said I could sit here and picture I could do something about it. So we actually pivoted away from the HR, took the basic idea of taking back control of your data. But now instead of to produce a tax form, how about actually making money from it, receiving fair value for it? And that's what Imagine BC is. So we've built a platform on top of blockchain technology that allows people to share as much personal data about themselves as they want. We then use that data on an, in an anonymous way, can never be traced back to them, to find opportunities for them to complete surveys, watch ads. And when we found those opportunities, they're presented to them within our app. They get to choose whether they want to do it or not. And if they do, they make money. And they make they essentially make 70% of what the company is offering to present their ad or have you complete that survey. We take 10%. The other 20% is distributed further amongst the community based on who, who helped us build the community, blah, blah, blah. So that's our mod, that was our model. And right now, interestingly, we never were able to get the, the Americans to understand it. They don't get it. They don't understand how important owning your data is. We're too rich a country. Earn 25 cents for watching an ad. What do I need 25 cents for, right? Interestingly enough, go to Africa, totally different concept. <laughs> Pay me 25 cents to watch an ad? Holy crap. <laughs> for the past six months, we've been busy branding the app for partners in Africa, and we're just about to launch it over there. In South Africa and in, in, in the very near future, probably in Botswana and potentially Mozambique as well. And we should have millions and millions of people on the platform pretty quickly because they get the value in a heartbeat. And then what we hope, that by proving the concept over there, we can eventually bring it back here and get Americans to understand it. Interesting. That's a fascinating model, and it's yeah. I mean, I I must admit, I haven't had a lot of blockchain people on the show yet, but it's uh, I just keep seeing newer and newer different applications for this. It's um, you know, as you say, I think everyone gets caught up in the currency discussion, but yes, it's um, yeah, forget the currency. Yeah, yeah. I mean, digital currency is inevitable. It's going to be controlled by governments. Governments will control it. I don't see the governments have the guns. They're not giving up control of their currency. That's like giving up control of your government. So that's not happening in my lifetime. <laughs> but but the, but the technology and, and the technology, you know, you can hear it to solve this problem, solve that problem. And blockchain technology doesn't solve the, the, you know, the ills of mankind. But there are certain things it's really, really good at. Protecting information in a distributed fashion, supply trade transparency. It's really good at that. And we're using it for the former one. Yeah, nice. And shaking up the advertising world too, which, let's be honest, is a is a massive problem. Well, and more importantly, is shaking shaking up the horrible model of Google and Facebook, yeah. who steal our data and are making the largest fortunes known to mankind on our backs and giving us nothing but grief for it. This is a bad exchange of value. Look, free email, keep your Gmail. I don't need it. Never pay for it. Never use it. Never want to. Right. It's we, we have paid a steep, steep price for their so-called services. They could keep them. And, and you know, if I say, would you pay twenty five dollars a month to use Facebook? The answer is no. Then, then it's of no value. If you're not willing to pay for something, it has no value. Well, as somebody once said to me, too, that if uh, you're not uh, if you're not paying for the product, you probably are the product. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. right. We, you know, we well, uh, we are even even I am. There are certain, you know, th- like I use Waze, Google's, you know, traffic app. I use it so they collect some data on me because there's value to me to know how to be traffic in the Washington D.C. area. But I have everything turned off. And in fact, it was interesting. You had me, you know, you're 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 just to get on here. You said use Chrome. I never use Chrome. I use Brave. I use the Brave browser, right? So, so I, I go, I'm as protective of my personal information as you could possibly be, but I know what this is out there and I'm 60 years old. Your, your, your classic millennial doesn't get it. They don't know what they've been giving away, but 
with inflation and robots coming, taking all the jobs, they're going to know in a heartbeat. <laughs> it's not too distant the future. They're going to realize what they've given away and they're going to want it back. Yeah. Interesting. Eric, I'm uh, really appreciative of you coming on and sharing your story. There's been a number of really good insights here. Um, I'll ask you in the moment if there's uh, any sort of parting tip, uh, you know, or tips uh, that you'd like to share with your fellow entrepreneurs. But um, before we before we get to that, I mean, are you are you? How can people get in contact? Are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can reach me at erind e r i n d at imaginebc.net. Feel free. Just you know, put the subject that you heard me on on Simon's podcast, and <laughs> and I'll I'll definitely respond. So yeah, I don't have any problem. And you know, I kind of I kind of was throughout our talk was saying the things you know, the lessons I've learned. Um, so I don't necessarily have any parting tips, but I will tell you, be very careful about being the minority equity holder, <laughs> especially especially if you're the creator, right? If you created the technology. And you really feel an ownership to it. You you don't want to be the minority shareholder. It's not. It probably is not going to end well for you. Yeah, that's uh, a very good tip into itself, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. You've been very generous. Um, I've really enjoyed chatting to you, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.